I'm Chris Reback. This is Call In. With Dr. Alexandria White, we discuss business leadership in our time of social change, when to call in, when to call out, and how to build sustainable business value today. Before our conversation, though, an ask from us to you. We hope you like these call-in conversations, and if so, we'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Our show is brought to you by Clayton Dubalier and Rice, which is committed to a more diverse and inclusive future. Let's call in. Dr. Alexandria White is off this week, and joining me today as co-host is Diane Flynn. Chris, thanks for joining. Thrilled to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Excellent. And we are joined today by Diane Flynn, who's filling in for Dr. Alexandria White, who couldn't join us today. Chris, let's start with just your background, if we could, and your role at Arizona State University. How did you get here? And what specifically drew you to ASU? I'm assuming it goes beyond just the opportunity to have the Sun Devil as your mascot. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Forks up. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. But yes, I've had a really wonderful, eclectic road. If you were a kid of a certain era, you saw that great Santa Claus special that had those toys of Misfit Island. I've had the toys of Misfit Island journey in a wonderful way, a truly American journey. I played football at at a high school in Texas, uh, won a state championship in Plano, was a good student athlete, went to the United States Air Force Academy, where I had success as a student athlete and won a road scholarship to Oxford as a young lieutenant, did my master's and my doctorate, did I flew choppers in the Air Force, transitioned to intelligence, and then I went to the corporate world, spent time at Bristol-Myers Squibb and subsequently General Electric in between there with the Harvard Business School, which was a lot of fun, like my colleague here, Diane, as well. I'm an alum as well of HBS. And then I had a real epiphany moment when I was serving in Afghanistan. September 11, 2003, I landed in Afghanistan. It was 20 years ago. I landed in Afghanistan running human intelligence operations over collection for then General Austin, now Secretary Austin, Defense. And when I finished my tour of duty, I thought, well, I'm going to General Electric as a junior exec, but I really want to do something where I'm giving back again. Maybe go back in the military, maybe go to nonprofit. I went to higher education. Worked at the University of Oklahoma as a vice president for strategy and leadership. Then I ran two colleges and universities, Hampton Sydney College in Virginia for almost seven, Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh for six. And then I was in conversations about either staying at Robert Morris or going someplace else, rekindled my relationship with Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University, and thought about all the great things Chris and I was doing at Robert Morris and Hampton Sydney College in the University of Oklahoma, but to do it at scale. Arizona State University has a $5.2 billion operating budget, 180,000 students, 350,000 learners that are non-degree seeking. So we could just largest education partner for most of the major technology companies. We could just do some things at a scale that I was excited about doing them. So that's why I came out to Arizona State about 18 months ago. Well, you played high school ball in Texas. I've I've heard that. I've heard that they play high school football in Texas. Yeah, they do. And we certainly could have a whole other conversation about Arizona State in particular and the transformation that has occurred there. When you talk about doing things at scale, I am aware from other reading that I've done, there is stuff going on at Arizona State that people really ought to know about. That's my way to get you back as a guest in the future. We'll talk about your diversity of experience in a moment, because that range that you just rattled off obviously is ridiculous, right? Nobody has that range of diversity of experience. I am the Forrest Gump of educators. (laughs) Run, run, Chris, run. I was going to say, keep running. But can I talk first about the word diversity? 
What does it mean today? I mean, we're talking with you just months after the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action in college admissions, just days after the Wall Street Journal, you may have seen it, released its diversity rankings on universities. What struck Diane and me as we were talking about this conversation with you, on the one hand, the Supreme Court decision seemed to reflect the increasing pushback among some around the importance or desire for lack of importance of weighting diversity. On the other hand, the journal and others are looking at diversity as a measure to rank a university's strength. So which is it? How should we think about, talk about, and act on diversity in a university setting or, for that matter, a corporate setting? Well, it's a very important question, and it's not just about race, but race is part of this. And as Ralph Ellison, who wrote The Invisible Man, says, uh, you talk about race, it gets complicated. And America's history is complicated, and how we deal with differences is complicated, yet important. So what we do know is that we can't get around it. We can talk about it differently. We can use different phraseology, but whether it be gender, whether it be race, whether it be differently able, whether it be ethnic origin, we have to talk about this. We have to figure out the ways to reconcile this in the 21st century going forward. So the SCOTUS case was a case. We'll see what happens next, but people are thinking about how to implement that, including the Biden administration. That happened recently at ASU. I just reminded him, so did uh, George Floyd. It happened. Mm -hmm. A man was murdered. A black man was murdered in front of things to a very brave young lady, billions of people. That happened. You know, there was weeping, there was pain, and there was thinking that maybe there's something wrong with how we put this all together. So how do we move forward? And I'll say a couple of quick things, and I'll apply back to the corporate setting. And that is at Arizona State, which is a particular institution, but has an interesting approach I think is relevant. We judge ourselves through our charter by whom we include rather than whom we exclude and their success and their outcomes. So whereas Harvard, and, and I'm on the board of overseers at Harvard, where different types of institution, they have about a three to 4% acceptance rate. My joke is that next year, they're just going to take three and four students. That's it. Like <laughs> three people and four people. That seven people can go to these schools. Yeah. It's just your model. There's nothing wrong with those models. We, on the other hand, we take in more. We took in 16, 17,000 students last year, including those that could have gone to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Duke, or whatever. And there's another article in another newspaper, the New York Times, it talks about well over half of all Black, Hispanic, and white students go to universities that accept at least 75% of those that apply. So let's face it, the big meaty part of what is happening in terms of diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, whatever you want to talk about, it's actually in a higher education setting, not happening at the schools of the SCOTUS case spoke to. Because most people don't go to schools like that, right? Yes. That, you yes. shouldn't debate it. That didn't mean people shouldn't talk about it. There's friends of the court briefs where a lot of people said, including the military, that weighed in and said this is important. But let's just say that we're addressing that other part. And in terms of corporations, I'm on a corporate board, a couple of private boards, whatever. As McKinsey reported, good diversity outcomes is good business outcomes. And as shareholder equity, stakeholder and uh, shareholders and what have you, we have a fiduciary responsibility to think about what it takes for management to get it right. And diversity is part of that. And so I think that there's still room for this conversation that is in another inning, but it, the game's still going on. Follow up on corporate, because the space that I operate in is primarily helping companies attract, promote, and retain women and diverse talent. And so we have been putting on leadership programs, mentorship programs, special things for these talent pools. How do you see this Supreme Court ruling impacting that? I know some of our clients are starting to say, well, we can't do these just for women anymore. What advice would you give, whether I guess it's educational institution or the corporate world? 
Well, I would say this. I'm not a lawyer. And even if I were a lawyer, most lawyers say I'm not that type of lawyer. <laughs> so I'm not making a legal and just I'm not giving sort of you the ASU line. I'm only saying that if you are in business, you have certain objectives, goals, things that you're trying to achieve. You need to do everything you can as a fiduciary to achieve those goals and ends. No matter what happened a few weeks ago in the court case, your ability to your point, Diane, to retain and grow and bring in talent, that hasn't changed. So you're going to do it differently. But if you don't do it, you're going to lose. You're going to lose the talented people that are in those groups, but also you're going to lose majority people that still care about this issue in a way. Now, how it's manifests itself, how the program looks like, how the training looks like, maybe it's going to change. But you know what? Think about any important function that's happening in society today, civil society, whether it be teaching, whether it be, I was watching a documentary on PBS about Ford making automobiles. Do we do anything the same way we did it 10 years ago? Heck, even five years ago. But look what's happened with AI. This is another management leadership governance challenge to get to something we think is important. And I think that human fulfillment and capital growth and human capital growth and development is important. I think that people, whether it be a woman, whether it be a person of color, they might experience that different than a majority person. And it's the step function is how you do that. And we have to come up with ways to do that that don't run afoul in the higher education sector, run afoul of the law. That's important. I know that business people are thinking, I get ahead of this or whatever, but they have to do something because again, it's not the how it's done, but the what is important. And this is important work. I can imagine having a company that didn't have the best talent developed the best way to achieve its end game and just took all that off the table because of a Supreme Court case. That would not be spot on. That would be wrong. Are there one or two things that you think would have the biggest impact in developing some of this more diverse talent? Well, I think that Eisner said years ago when he was at Disney, he says, the fist stinks from the head down if you're not careful. So leadership matters and communication matters. I think that when especially line managers, nothing at all against my HR managers do amazing yeoman, yeoman's work. When leaders in an organization, especially the ones that are running the big P&Ls say that this is important and that we're going to communicate how it still is important and do it in a way that makes sense for us going forward, I think that's going to make a difference. How does that manifest itself? I'm not saying memos and manifestos or whatever, actions speak louder than words, but words do matter. And so I think that the biggest tool in their arsenal will be communicating that this is something that still matters because we want to win. <laughs> we want this business to be profitable. We want it to grow, so forth and so on. Well, I will no longer work with a client where the leader doesn't buy into this because if they don't model and message it, I've seen that nothing happens. You're absolutely right. On that messaging, and I love your use of the word language because how one speaks impacts what other people hear. And I'm curious about the importance of needing to speak about ideas and about ideas in ways that simultaneously convey the leadership that you're talking about and that someone like you presents every day, but also delivers it in a way that the range of audiences are able to hear. And what's making me think about that is going back to that diverse series of experiences in your background. And, and I'm curious, I realize not all of us have experiences as diverse as yours. Not all experiences need to be as diverse as yours. But if you feel like diverse experience helps generate diverse thinking, or at least an openness to diverse thought, how do you encourage or enable diverse experiences for students? And what advice might you have for a corporate CEO about advancing the same goals in the corporate world? 
Well, let me go back to mindset first, and I'll go into some things that are more concrete. And I ever talk about leadership, and I talk about one thing about effective and efficient communication, which is speaking to express rather than to impress. So know your audience and speak in a way that doesn't get them going like this. You've got your arms folded and a look on your face like, you know, talk to the hand because I'm not listening. I would say the other thing I talk about in my talk is about the leaders are empathetic. They have the ability to put themselves in other people's shoes. And what mm-hmm. you describe about me personally having a set of diverse experiences. And one of the things you didn't note is that I grew up in a community. My dad was an army officer for several years, very mixed community. When he got out, I went to a very mixed community. Then I went to a very African-American community, then back to Plano, Texas as a fourth grader, as the only black kid in my class. And I'm graduating from a high school. As I said, we mentioned we won state. We had 1,300 people in my graduating class. There were fewer than 20 black people. And I was student body president mm. and I held myriad leadership roles. So I was a guy who for years was one of only or few black people in every setting all the time. Went to church in the black church, went to school in Madame White School. So would it be called it code switching? I'm putting my air quotes up for our listeners. Uh, code switching or diplomacy. I just had to navigate and had to be what uh, Warren Bennis, the great writer, thinker, former president of uh, University of Cincinnati, Marshall School professor, whisperer to people like Howard Schultz, is I had to be the other. In his book called On Becoming a Leader, which I commend to you, he talks about it's very important as a leader to become, spend some time as the other. And so I, I start with that mindset. And if you're a CEO of a company or a president of a university, you need to think about how do I help my people be comfortable being the other because they'll be a better human being and they'll be a better leader no matter what area they might go into. At Arizona State University, as big as we are, we have myriad programs, whether it be study abroad, we have 13,000 international students, we have 158 countries. You know, we have as many Jewish students or Muslim students as any university in the country. We are an MSI, a minority serving and a Hispanic serving institution, which means we graduate 30% of our class are Hispanic. If we were a historically black college university, we'd be number eight or nine. So we created a diverse environment where people navigate with a set of values, some from the nation, some from our university, some from their homes that allows them to have to bump into that. And that's, you know, that's what we've been able to do in a university setting. Back to the corporate side, I am a fan of ERGs. When they're quite often led by or co-led by a majority person who really wants to do it, not just checking off a box. I'm a fan of them when the top leadership does it. When I was at GE years ago, first it was Jack Welch and it was Jeff Immelt. I mean, the African-American Forum, African, African-American, Afro-Caribbean leaders, I mean, it was on the calendar 10 years in advance for the CEO. That person would go wow. to that. And it was big. I met Al Roker because he was an NBC guy. <laughs> I, I did a yeah. great company. I met Al Roker, who was at that point a fellow GE leader, as it were. So I think there's some intentional programs. There's some things we've done at ASU that are very unique. Like I said, I think the biggest thing is that mindset of that. I need people to be the other because the empathy that they develop makes them better commercial leaders, better business development leaders, so forth and so on. I love that point, the importance of being the other and what can be learned from that. What would you advise as a closing question here? What would be one or two things that leaders or managers can do to demonstrate and practice empathy? Tactical. Practical, I would say, if you're looking around in your calendar and your meetings are 90% people that look like you, and Admiral Mike Mullins makes a great point. He's a former chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. He goes, you know, ducks tend to get other ducks. I went to this school, you went to that school, come on. If you start looking at your calendar and most of your meetings are with people that look just like you, have the same background, the same pedigree, then you need to put a little chlorine in that gene pool and think about 
how can I find a way professionally and personally just to get other vantage points? Because you're going to be better because you're just you're just going to be better. You know, even if you don't change anything, you're like, at least I saw another vantage point. So I would say the intentionality of who you sort of associate with. And then the last thing is just books are good, whether they're on tape or whatever. There's some great literature out there about understanding the human condition. That's why I love literature so much. A lot of my friends that are clinicians now, they spend a lot of time in what we call the medical humanities. It's like understanding that Black woman when she presents to you with a case. And many times there's a bias that says Black women can take more pain. I think Serena Williams talked about this. Black women have a difficult time. This has been empirically proven, right? That when they're talking yes. to a doctor, especially a doctor didn't look like them, and they say it hurts. They're like, no, no, it didn't hurt. I'm not listening to you. It really doesn't hurt, right? So it's not only doctors that fall into that. There are other people. So if you're not doing things that are intentionally, like so, so if you're not in your library, reading literature, reading, growing your capacity to kind of see other what have you, then I think you're in a bad way. So look at your calendar, read some really good books, whether they be fiction or nonfiction, think about being the other. I think that's all useful, directionally useful. You know, you just quoted Admiral Mullen as part of the importance of being the other and having that understanding. I know you heard as well at an event that I had the privilege of attending that you and Diane were at, Admiral McRaven reminding all of us that a shepherd should smell like his sheep, (laughs) which is not to say, just to be clear, you do not smell like a sheep. You, (laughs) You smell and look and act like a leader. And thank you. My thanks to Diane for joining us today and filling in for Dr. White. And Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about these topics. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. And I wish you all the best. Thank you, Chris.